0: Get Vigoro
1: Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. The Dream Team Tapes Season 2. Kobe, LeBron, and the Redeem Team is a production of Diversion Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio.
2: The players selected for the honor of representing the United States in the 2008 Beijing Olympic Games are Kobe Bryant.
3: We look forward to this for a while, you know, to be in this position now to be able to you know, represent our
4: country,
5: man. It's special. It's special.
2: LeBron James.
5: We look for the opportunity to rekindle that flame of being the best in the world. I guess the redeemed team is, is, is right.
4: We the best team in the world. We the best team in the world. We, we put basketball, American basketball, where it's supposed to be, which is at the top.
1: Can you hear that Godfather-like music in the background? I'm Jack McCallum, and we're here in episode 4 of Kobe, LeBron and the Redeem Team to talk about a Godfather figure who did a humpty dumpty repair act on an American basketball program that had fallen on hard times. Now, there are many reasons why the Redeem Team became the Redeem Team, but one of the big ones is Jerry Colangelo. The Godfather, and that's the title of episode four. My co-host is Jay Adonde, who did the great podcast Beyond the Last Dance. Jay, what has been your connection with The Godfather over the years? Anybody that covered the league pretty much came into contact with Jerry Colangelo.
3: Exactly, he was impossible to avoid if you're around basketball, basketball in general, particularly the NBA. But I'll tell you, the first time I really got a, a taste of his power. And that was in 2000 at the National Association of Black Journalists Convention in Phoenix that year. And we'd given one of our Pioneer Awards. The Sports Task Force gives Pioneer Awards for for people groundbreaking uh, in that region. And so Jerry got one. Uh, Connie Hawkins, the great Phoenix Sun star, was was another recipient that year. And we had bought tickets to an Arizona Diamondbacks game. Of course, Colangelo was the the man in charge of the Diamondbacks. So we bought a block of tickets and we let Jerry know about it. And he said, How many tickets you got? We we're like, oh, I don't know, 20 in our block. And he said, Well, I see way more than 20 people here. Do you, you guys need some more tickets? We're like, Okay. And he whips out his cell phone. He's on the phone. He says, What about a suite? You guys want a suite? Uh, okay, sure. The, what, what do you want in there? Want some beers? Want some chicken? Some nachos? What, what do you want? Put in our order, and boom, like in 30 seconds, done. And we go there. We have the suite. We get in there. There's a big tub of beers. Diamondbacks were playing the Cubs. Sammy Sosa hit a couple of home runs. It might've been the best time I've ever had at a baseball game. And Jerry Colangelo made it happen in about 30 seconds, just from start to finish, he hooked it up like that. So that's the power of Jerry Colangelo. I got a quick lesson in that.
1: Yep, that's what you do when you're the godfather. But you know, before we hear what he's done, here's a very quick bio. Jerry has owned, general managed, and coached the Phoenix Suns. He has owned the Arizona Diamondbacks, Of Major League Baseball, the Phoenix Mercury of the WNBA, the Arizona Sand Sharks of the Continental Indoor Soccer League, the Arizona Rattlers of the Arena Football League, and he was instrumental in relocating the Winnipeg Jets to become the Phoenix Coyotes. He built a program at Grand Canyon University. He was chairman of the basketball operation for the 76ers, and he's been president of the NBA Board of Governors. And that's not even the most interesting part of his bio, J.A. I'm not going to say how old he is. That's up to him. But let's just say he was around long enough that he was going to be a teammate of Wilt Chamberlain at the University of Kansas. This was after Wilt had been there, and Wilt decided to leave for the Harlem Globetrotters. And Jerry took one look around and decided, without Wilt Chamberlain, I don't want to be there either. He transferred to the University of Illinois where he became a very good Big Ten basketball player. So for a little background on why Jerry was so important, we have to go back to those years around 2003, 2004. Jay, what was going on? Why was he so needed to come along and save the USA basketball program?
3: Well, USA basketball had fallen on hard times, and it took about a decade since the advent of NBA players into USA basketball, and they were riding high through three Olympics, But then it had fallen, and and starting with the 2002 World Championships in America, in Indianapolis, U.S. loses there, and then, of course, the fiasco of the third-place finish in Athens at the Olympics there in 2004. So just throwing out NBA players wasn't enough. We needed a stronger regimen, and USA Basketball needed more buy-in from the top players. It was clear that in order to win the gold medal again, they needed the best of American basketball players to participate, not just American basketball players. That wasn't going to cut it anymore. They needed someone to get everyone in line, to get buy-in, to bring structure and organization. And that's where Jerry Colangelo came in.
1: Now, there's a theory from the 19th century called the great man theory. Thomas Carlyle thought of it, and he's Scottish, and I'm Scottish, and that's uh, probably why I remember it. Carlyle theorized that history could be explained by the impact of great men, that they come along at times of most need, that they had divine inspiration, they had courage, they had intellect, and they had leadership to make it really happen. Where the hell they are during the pandemic, by the way, I have no idea. But anyway, in terms of the great man theory, if you look at the Redeem team, I suppose we could say it would be Mike Krzyzewski who we're going to be talking about in the next episode, or Kobe Bryant or LeBron James, who we've already discussed. But the first one to come along to change the course of USA basketball's history was Jerry Colangelo. And when the invitation came along to lead USA basketball and reorganize the program, it was a very inopportune time for Mr. Colangelo.
2: First of all, 04 was a very traumatic year for me, outside of... uh watching the USA basketball team uh, not do very well in Greece, but I had made a decision to, uh, to sell the Suns. That took place in the middle of 04. Uh, not long after that, I stepped down with the Diamondbacks. A few months later, I was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame, took my wife to Europe, got involved in a street fight, On the streets of Paris, when she was attacked by two muggers. And um, that was an interesting evening because we had plans in Paris. And uh, as it turned out, uh, my eyes were not in good shape when I was pepper sprayed during this fight. And we had to uh, spend the night in the hotel. I did order a bottle of champagne and pour two glasses. And I said to my wife, we were both 65 at the time, I said, you know, for two. 65-year-olds, we handled ourselves pretty well. And I'm referring to the fight that took place in front of a five-star hotel in Paris. And so I had a speaking engagement in Chicago on the way back. And I made the comment, I said, you know, it's been a very traumatic year. There's still a little bit of time left in this year. What's next? And uh, soon thereafter, I was advised I had prostate cancer and had to make a some major decisions in terms of my health.
1: Now, I was around Jerry in those years a lot because I was researching a book on the Phoenix Suns, which became 7 Seconds or Less. And I was impressed by the way, the way Jerry, he had just sold the team, as he mentioned in his earlier quote, to Robert Sarver, who did things, let's just say, a little differently. Now, he did leave his son in place. Brian Colangelo was GM of the Suns. He later left also. But For a guy that was really at the center of things, Jerry left that team alone after he had sold it to Robert Sarver. Otherwise, though, he was always in the middle of the action. Rules committees, controversies, TV negotiations. And I said earlier he was chairman of the board of governors of the NBA. And I was surprised when we asked him why he had never been invited before 2005 to get involved with the Olympic program. Here's what he said.
2: I don't know. I'm (laughs) not sure sure there was ever uh, an invitation to be involved with USA Basketball.
1: Well, there was a need to have him now, and David Stern, then the commissioner, usually left most of the work with USA Basketball to his trusted lieutenant, Russ Granick, who is, by the way, one of the truly underrated figures in our Olympic basketball program. And one day, David Stern called the Godfather. We teased this in the last episode, but here it is again.
2: He says, Jerry, look, I know you were just as unhappy as me and everyone else regarding the showing in Greece and all the things about it, and there needs to be some change. Would you be willing to take on the responsibility for USA Basketball? And I'm instinctive, and I basically said, yeah, I'll do it, but I have a couple of conditions. And he said, what are they? I said, one, full autonomy. I'll pick the coaches and the players. And this old system, which was a little too political for me, uh, in terms of, of the selection process, went by the wayside. He said, you got it. What's number two? And I said, I don't want to hear about a budget. And he went off in typical stern fashion. And I let him go. And I said, David, are you finished? He said, yes. I said, it's still number two. (laughs) <laughs> and he acquiesced, and then I assured him, don't worry about it, I'll raise the money. Now, during that prior quad, they raised $9 million to cover expenses for USA Basketball. Uh, during my first quad, we raised $36 million, and there was no looking back. So that's how it all started, and that was all in the early days of uh, '05.
1: That's true. Money was never much of an object for Jerry, either spending it or raising it. And I think you came across that particular aspect of Jerry Colangelo, Jay.
3: And one time I was out in Phoenix and there was an event, a fundraising event for the Basketball Hall of Fame, which, as you mentioned, Jerry Colangelo's uh, chairman of the board. I don't know what his title is. It, it, it always sounds appropriate to call him the chairman of the board. though. And so he got in there and he just hounded people. He got up there when it was time to really bring in the bucks at the end of this this banquet, he just ground people down and forced them. And I've heard stories that he's done fundraising events where he'll literally lock the doors to the room and say, "You guys aren't leaving here until we hit our target figure of fundraising." So he is a phenomenal fundraiser. You just don't want to go against him, right? If he asks you for something, you don't want to say no. He's pretty impossible to refuse.
1: Yeah, he's a hard guy to refuse. I mean, he he now heads the uh, Hall of Fame. He really turned around. By the way, they're their finances, and pretty much a month doesn't go by that I don't get a fundraising letter from the uh, from the Hall of Fame. The other thing about Jerry, by the way, and one of the reasons I always enjoyed talking to him and and being in his circle, was he's sort of like the old-time boxing promoters. He doesn't care what you say about him. Just say something. He doesn't take things personal. He doesn't hold grudges. He's had some negative publicity along the way, But uh, he's always rolled with it and never held that against anyone later. Now, you asked him during our long interview with him, why was it important for him to answer this call to USA Basketball?
2: Well, I was, I guess at the moment, I felt that I was in a position to do something like that. And it was great timing, in my opinion. You know, you sell the Suns, you step down in baseball. So I was available. Let's put it that way. Even with my full plate of other things, I liked it. I liked the challenge, you know, in terms of taking on that responsibility. And it was, you know, I'm pretty um, open about this. I'm proud to be an American. I was unhappy about the way people were looking at us as Americans, as athletes, and in particular, our basketball people in Greece. And it was a little shameful, in my opinion. And so the opportunity to represent your country, which is a lot different than a city, a state, and not just something domestic, but this was representing your country on the world stage and having a chance to to make a statement.
1: You're listening to Kobe, LeBron, and the Redeem team. We'll be back in a minute. So the first order of business for any new executive is to, quote, change the culture, unquote. Now, that's a vague term, but a lot of times in sports, I think, Jay, what that means is to get a new coach, get a coach that's going to set the uh, right tenor, set the team on a new course. Back in the early 90s, uh, they picked Chuck Daly to be coach of the Dream Team in early 1991 because they thought He was the best guy to establish the correct culture. And I think that uh, that was the right decision. So to make this decision for the 2008 team, what later became known as the Redeem team, Jerry Colangelo wanted feedback. And the great thing about being a godfather, J.A., is when you hold a sit down, everybody comes.
3: Exactly. And so Jerry Colangelo basically convened a meeting of the five families, if you're a godfather fan. And got all these big names in the basketball world, all people who had been involved with the Olympics before, to get together for a brainstorming session in Chicago. And that's what's so impressive, is that he didn't call them together for any particular moment or movement. You know, let, let's just kick around some ideas. And only Jerry Colangelo could get that type of star power, one room, just for an idea session.
2: Immediately, I knew culture change. We have to give, gain back the respect. And my first order of business was who was going to be the coach that I would select. I called a meeting in Chicago of uh, former Olympic coaches and former Olympic players. And it was held at the Italian American Sports Hall of Fame. And uh, it was a new building, great setting. And if you were a basketball fly, you wanted to be in that room knowing who was in that room Uh, great names, great basketball people, all there because I had requested them to be there because they cared.
3: And so he got all these people to come there. And by these people, I'm talking the likes of Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, Jerry West, John Thompson, Scottie Pippen. All these legendary figures of the game showed up just because he asked them to.
2: It was out of respect they were showing me and I basically, they knew I was going to make the final decisions. But the fact that I was reaching out and wanted their input um, meant something to them also. I had each one of them speak. I wanted to know, share your experience as an Olympian. Tell us what your read on how things are. And number three, what do you think needs to happen? And they all had great stories and, you know, we just sat around and listened and, uh, it was it was terrific, and then I said, "Well, I'm going to put some names up on the board. Let's let's talk about coaches, pro coaches, college coaches, and the college coach. Of course, as you know, that, that turned out to be number one by a landslide at the time was Coach K. But Dean Smith, who was a former Olympic coach, was there, and he said." There's only one, one college guy up there on that board who could get the job done, and that's because he has the respect of all the players, and he's current. He's the, he's the one, and that was Coach K. Now think about that. His, his biggest rival in his career was Dean Smith, and Dean Smith was pushing him, which I thought was kind of an, a, a seminal moment for me, at least. And then we got to the players, and we broke down the players by position, and we start talking about a whole list of players and ranking players. But here's an interesting thing on the on the pro coaches. Uh, number one was Popovich. Number two was someone not even coaching anymore. It was Pat Riley. He had stepped down from coaching, but Pat got the second most support. So literally, I had two two candidates: Popovich in coach k so jay
1: at this point if you're a betting man you're thinking well we don't know what happened in a meeting but you probably looks like greg popovich who has already won nba championships it looks like he's going to be the guy
3: you would think so but i mean if dean is is vouching for coach k that's a pretty strong endorsement from his rival from from up tobacco road and keep in mind phil jackson you would think would be another candidate but as he told us he was basically out of the mix. He'd been asked in the 1990s and he said no back then.
2: I was asked and declined. I felt that, you know, I was in the middle of coaching until July. Usually, season would end in June. we go into the draft in late June. And I had in my contract that I had two months off, July and August. And I'd be back in Labor Day. And I had a family of five. And I wanted to, you know, get back in with my family and enjoy my summers and compressed from basketball. So when they asked if I was interested, I said, no, USA. Uh, I said, no, I'm not. Thank you.
3: So Phil and USA basketball, that's a no-go and that had been long established. And, you know, Greg Popovich, you would think, would be a strong candidate. He'd he'd already won a couple NBA championships at that point. It's shown that he could work with big players but maybe he was a little bit specific to the type of players that he had on that team in San Antonio. That might have been one concern. And then the other concern was he and Jerry just didn't really hit it off.
2: Pop and I had had our disagreements, you know, just competitive disagreements between San Antonio and Phoenix over the years. Mike, I knew fairly well. I mean, I saw Mike play when he was at Army 100 years ago. And I spent time with him when he was an assistant at Indiana under Bobby Knight, briefly. So there was a relationship there. And from time to time, I would speak with him about players uh, before the draft each year, etc. And so I had a good relationship. Um, I called Pop. And honestly, I, th- this turned out to be yet another problem for the two of us at the moment at that time. I didn't sense any real enthusiasm over the phone from Pop. He was really basically being himself because he doesn't show a lot of emotion or enthusiasm. So in some ways, it was a little bit of a misread on my part, but I walked away from that phone call a little taken back that he didn't show more enthusiasm for the opportunity. The reason that became an issue is that later on, when I was asked why Coach Chysevsky, uh, and not Popovich, I, I said that to the media, in some way, shape, or form. I said I didn't feel it. I didn't sense it. Well, that upset Pop quite a bit. He sent me uh, a letter expressing his, uh, you know, unhappiness, etc. And I apologized to him at the time.
1: And there's an even deeper angle to the whole Pop story. Remember that Pop had been the main assistant on that Larry Brown team that had been embarrassed in the 2004 Olympics. Here's a guy we've counted on before, Sean Ford, who is now USA Basketball's national team director, totally plugged in. He talks about that Popovich situation.
8: This is an instance where I wish I was better at my job and and saw things better and different because I I think, you know, the, the meeting that Jerry's talking about took place in may of 2005 and here you have jerry who's just really really excited and he should be you know of where he is and what's in front of him and uh in that meeting there was there was conversations of who the coaches should be and you know it seemed like the clear favorites were you know coach k and 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 pop you know and it wasn't a lot of conversation between the two it was just like that was a direction and um you know, an interesting thing in the meeting is that, you know, a lot of different people spoke, you know, but one of the things that happened was that, you know, Michael Jordan supported Coach K as the coach and Dean Smith was in the room, you know, and I think Dean supported it as well. And so it's not like that carried the day, but it, that's a moment that, you know, you, you, you think about if you're in the room, that that's something you, you, you remember. But the other thing is that here's Pop who had the experience of O2 the, the low of O2, the high of O3, when we were really good, and then the low of O4. And it's still, you know, in his system. And so when, when he talks to Jerry, he's, I think, still thinking about how we can, you know, we got to do things differently. And I think it, it was, it was still close. It was still an open wound for pop, you know, and I, I think that, but he was, he was still very interested, he would have loved to do it. And so I, I've heard Jerry talk about that a little bit. And and I wish I, you know, maybe, you know, could have said, you know, hey, look, I, I you got to understand where Pop is right now. Um, this is still an open wound for him.
1: So Jerry had his coach, Mike Shishetsky, who also happened to be Michael Jordan's choice and Dean Smith's choice. But Jay, you still got to get the players. And remember, what Calangelo was doing here was a big ask, a much bigger ask than former Olympians had received. Here's Craig Miller who was USA Basketball's longtime director of public relations.
8: It's famously known that he went and interview, had players interview with him and talk about why they wanted to play and how much do they want to play. And, you know, it's like anything else. It's the more you got to become invested in something, the more it means to you. And then the other part of it was this wasn't when Jerry took over. It wasn't just a one year commitment. It ended up being almost a a three-year, 2006, 2007, 2008. We had competitions every year, and we had the same core group of players.
1: You know, I think one of the godfather's greatest strengths was that he stayed in touch with the game. you got to stay connected. And here's Sean Ford again talking about that.
8: What was interesting to me is that Jerry did a really good job through his career of, of staying in touch with people in college and knowing people. You know, like Bobby Knight was always a really like they 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 played together in you know in the Big Ten in the late '50s, early '60s, and people knew him. Uh, I remember you know like CM and Tom Jernstead and people like that. They didn't they weren't friends with him, but they had met him. They had they knew about him. They um, had interacted with him in, in some capacity somewhere along the line. And uh, when you think of NBA owners, you don't think of that you know, a lot. But with Jerry, he he was um, engaged in a lot of different things.
1: You know, Jay, there's only been certain guys who have been able to do that over a period of years. A lot of the old timers, you know, the guys that didn't make as much money, people forgot about them. They're not in the headlines anymore. They get disillusioned. They drift away from the game. But Jerry Colangelo, like a few others, you know, stayed connected. There's only a couple other guys who have been able to do
3: that. Yeah, I'd say Jerry West is another great example. Uh- 1960s Olympics Laker great in the 60s and early 70s and became one of the best executives if not the best basketball executives of all time and and even when that time had passed has still stuck around and even to this day his input is so valued that he, he's always on someone's list as a consultant he recently had done it with the Golden State Warriors currently with the Los Angeles Clippers so if Jerry Colangelo is the godfather Jerry West is the consigliere.
1: Phil Jackson is kind of like that too, Jay. He stays, you know, up in the mountains a little more and descends from the heavens when he gets back in the game, but he seems to stay connected in his own way.
3: Yeah, and he's also adding to his bank account as well. But I think you're seeing the formation of the culture though that that Jerry Colangelo talked about. And the sense that, okay, if people like Jerry West and these greats of the past, Michael Jordan even, who isn't somebody that jumps back into things and, and stays involved when when there isn't a, a paycheck involved, if these people could still be involved, I think it gave incentive to the players that Jerry Colangelo was going to seek to recruit. And Darren Williams was one of those players. For me, it was kind of a no-brainer. And um, I just wanted to hoop. so summers are boring as it is just working out and grinding by yourself in the gym. So for me to be able to play with, with the best players in the world, you know, that was something that I look forward to.
1: That's funny, you and Kalancho had you still keep that University of Illinois thing. He went there like 50 <laughs> years before that, man. But
3: I didn't even know you'd realize that, you know? Yeah, no, I, I Jerry was kind of, he was kind of frequently in and out of Illinois, you know, and, and you know, popped in and would it man, would, yeah. would speak to us. And so, you know, I was pretty aware of who he was, you know, throughout the process.
1: You're listening to Kobe, LeBron, and the Redeem Team. We'll be back in a minute.
0: At bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off, grand slam, or a base hit to center field.
3: So another guy who was well aware of who Jerry Colangelo was because he'd worked for him before was Jason Kidd, another point guard. And he played for the Phoenix Suns, but that relationship didn't end so well. Uh, Jerry Colangelo basically wanted him out and traded him to the New Jersey at the time Nets. That was at Jerry Colangelo's request. So I think some of us were surprised that they could reunite for this team. And to hear Jason Kidd tell the story, he wasn't even quite sure that this was really happening when Colangelo first reached out to him to see if he wanted to be a part of this Olympic team. I think I was hurt um, in 04, so I couldn't
5: participate. And so um, and things didn't go well for us. And so I, I thought uh, if I ever got the opportunity, I knew I was getting a little older uh, and there was going to go to the guys that deserve to be there. But when Jerry gave me a call and asked would I participate, At first, I thought he was joking, but he was serious. And anytime Jerry calls to ask you to do something, you you don't, there is no no. So I was very honored for him to ask me to play. But didn't he trade you? (laughs) (laughs) He did trade me. Uh, And I was, I was bitter uh, about that trade because I loved Phoenix. I loved playing for him, but also the business of basketball, uh, as you know, you you learn quickly as you get older, uh, things happen. And so, Uh, But I knew Jerry and Coach K were trying to fix Team USA and put the best team together. Maybe not the top 12 or 13 players, but the best team. And uh, I was just very, again, honored that he asked me to participate in that.
1: Are you kidding when you said you were surprised? Yeah. No. When you said you thought he was kidding? I thought he was joking. Um, I thought he was
5: just trying to, you know play a little joke before he was going to ask me to do something else. And so, uh, but when he asked me to uh, be part of Team USA, I I really thought he was joking because I looked at the team and the team that everybody was talking about. You know, I thought it was a rebranding of Team USA. I thought it uh, it was done with class.
1: Now, one of the better selection stories comes from Carmelo Anthony. So here's a young player who had just been embarrassed in the 2004 Olympics lost out in Rookie of the Year to LeBron James, who he probably knows is going to overshadow him his whole career. Carmelo also had a bad rep in some quarters. He wouldn't really seem to know Jerry Colangelo from Jerry Lewis. And what would he give a crap about Mike Krzyzewski for? He was only in college for one year. But here's Carmelo Anthony.
4: Yeah, well, by the time Jerry came to us, came to me personally, it was like, Okay like I, I Jerry I want to I want to be a part of this. I mean you asking a lot like 3 year commitment to this. That's a lot, right? And but at that point it was just like all right Jerry, you know what? Like I'm I me personally I'm giving you this commitment. Like I'm giving you myself for the next 3 years. And well, you know once I committed to that and and understood the goal and the and the, and the vision for Team USA, you know, Team USA basketball and just the culture that was trying to be created, that Jerry was creating, I bought into it. Like I, I bought into it. And then, you know, other guys, other guys have bought into it. So I think I was the last one that he came to meet with. So it was like, you know, I'm coming to you last. Like, I'm, I need your commitment. If you're going to be committed, we want you. If not, then, you know, I need you to let, it, let us know that now.
1: So you didn't have to call D-Wade and LeBron to see if they were in, or did you already know they were in when you committed?
4: Nah, I mean, they was all, yeah, They Jerry had went to them uh, prior to, like, before me. So, they already was hearing that they was in. So, I was just honest. I was just waiting on Jerry to, you know, I'm like, damn, where's Jerry at? Like, Jerry ain't coming to me. Like, where where's he at? So, by the time he came to me, it was like, I was, I was already in. I was already committed.
1: It was Carmelo's eagerness to play that speaks to the alliances that were formed on this team and teaches us, maybe, a little lesson that we shouldn't Rush to judgments about people, that we should wait and make our own judgments, which is what Jerry Colangelo did in the case of Carmelo. I'm really sensitive to this because you tend to do that when you get older, which I am, and you really have to be careful about it. And I really credit a person like Colangelo, who after all was playing college basketball back in the 1950s, being able to do that, particularly in the case of Carmelo
2: there was a bad taste in the mouth of many regarding Carmelo. And some people in basketball said, I wouldn't waste my time with him. So in that first meeting with Carmelo, I told him that. I said, I want you to know there are a lot of people who have said no. You know, lack of character, blah, blah, blah. He was stunned, shocked. And I said, and I'll tell you how I feel. I'll wipe the slate clean for you and I'm, I'm going to watch you during the course of this year, and we'll talk. Well, during the course of the year, I heard from him three times where he called me to say, how do you think I'm doing? Is everything okay? And he was playing well. He was really working at it. And, uh, of course, in picking him, think about all he's accomplished with USA basketball, the records, the, the wins. He was a terrific international player.
3: And one thing Colangelo had the benefit of this time was that he did have the full availability of Kobe Bryant. Remember, as we talked about in a previous episode, Kobe was unavailable in 2004 because he was uncertain about how his sexual assault case was going to play out. And it was scheduled for trial in the summer of 2004. Uh, They eventually resolved it without it going to trial. But he couldn't be certain of that in time to give USA Basketball, enough notification that he could participate. He couldn't guarantee his ability to participate. So that was 2004. In 2008, that's all resolved. It's all clear. So he could get Kobe with no problem. But there was someone else he, he wanted as well, and that was LeBron James.
2: So I, I actually centered myself in Chicago because it's kind of a crossroads, and I saw players coming and going, as it turned out. Met LeBron at uh, the Ritz Carlton across the street, and because uh, I stay at the the Hyatt, and um, nine o'clock meeting in the lobby with LeBron. At exactly nine o'clock, the elevator door opened and out stepped LeBron, right on time. And with him, I was about halfway through my my pitch, if you will. He said, "I'm in, I'm in." And so, what I sensed was The guys were buying in, you know, and that made me feel pretty good.
1: Okay, Jerry's gathered up some of his guys, but the big question remains, will they buy into Coach Krzyzewski, a college
3: coach? And that was a relevant question because we hadn't seen college coaches since we'd gone to this model of NBA players. And so you also have more and more players who didn't go to college at all. Right. So this roster was going to be made up of guys like Kobe and LeBron James and Dwight Howard, who had never played for a college coach. So they didn't have that experience of a guy who's in command. And could a college coach adapt to this situation where he doesn't have as much control as he would in college? Mike Krzyzewski is Duke basketball. Right. But Mike Krzyzewski couldn't be USA basketball, not with these players, not with their accomplishments, not with their egos. So would he be able to adapt as well? So, we'll examine all these questions and what approach Coach K decided on in the next episode. Here's a taste.
5: I know I probably have too foul a mouth, but uh, they don't expect me to say motherfucker. (laughs) And, you know, when you're talking, just come on, you motherfucker. Like, we got to get this gold medal. And all of a sudden, I wasn't this uh, guy from Duke and West Point. You know, I was more of the guy from. The inner city of Chicago. Yeah,
1: <laughs> so that's it for this episode. I'm Jack McCallum. Thanks
3: for listening. And I'm J. A. Dante. Check us out next time on Kobe, LeBron, and the Redeem Team.
1: The Dream Team Tapes, Season Two: Kobe, LeBron, and the Redeem Team is a production of Diversion Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This season is written and hosted by me, Jack McCallum, and J.A. Adande. Executive producer Scott Waxman and Mark Francis for Diversion Podcast, and Sean Titone for iHeartRadio. Our editorial director is John Tuttle. Supervising producer, Brian Murphy. Legal producer, Freddie Overstegan. Editing, mixing, and sound design by Mark Francis. Verna Fields is our technical producer, and our director of marketing and business development is Jacob Bronstein.
7: Diversion Podcasts. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. (sighs)